the purpose of John's gospel is found at the end of the book, and I want to remind you of it. Um, John 20, 30, and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we need to be reminded of that over and over because we are going to see that sign uh, mentioned uh, this morning. And so um, I just want you to be reminded of that as you move throughout this book. Uh, we are going to see Jesus disclose himself uh, in word and deed. Uh, we see the overall theme of this book coming out really in this chapter, and you're just going to keep picking that up and picking that up as you move forward. Uh, today he turns water into wine, and then he cleanses the temple, and, um, and, and he reveals how he will even replace uh, I believe, the temple here. And so um, I think it's important that we see it. Now, the other thing just to say is some people, uh, and you may be like this, maybe um, you have struggled with trying to understand things about Jesus or you just thought, oh man, I wish I could just, I wish I could just kind of get verifiable evidence. You know, some people uh, in their lives really struggle with uh, being able uh, to believe the message of the gospel or the Bible or things about it and they're just wanting like oh, they want to sign or they want to see it or they want to uh, just if I could have just been there during the time of Jesus uh, Jesus will talk about that in this gospel where we say blessed are those who did not see but believe uh, that they're really receiving the signs by faith but one of the wonderful things here that I think you and I see is that we also have to receive those signs by faith had we been there or whether we were actually there when Jesus was walking on the earth because there were people that would observe what Jesus did and still not truly believe. And so we have to know, I think, for all of us to say, look, God has given us these signs in his word and by the power of the spirit. Uh, he opens our eyes to see and gives us ears to hear. And we should be grateful for that and really be praying that God would do that even this morning. And so uh, you're going to see these signs unfold. There are many different signs that are not even written in John, but these today I hope will open your eyes and help you see. Uh, the other thing I would say is sometimes um, I, I think people neglect the Word of God in their lives, and they do not grow in their understanding of the things that have been revealed to us. And their neglect sometimes like causes them to, I think, have fears and doubt and all that kind of stuff. But for us, I think it's just a good reminder today, and Anna and I were talking about that this last week, uh, of how important it, it, it is for us not to neglect God's revelation that's given to us, but to em embrace it, to read it, to think upon it, to dwell upon it, uh, so that by the Spirit we might be, our eyes may be open and our ears more clearly understanding and perceiving what the Lord has given us. Now, the Christianity, because, you know, you think about it, it gives us very shocking truth claims, and um, we need to, to, to be reminded of them and thinking on them and, and, and seeing those more clearly. Now, this morning, uh, again, just thinking about the structure uh, of John's gospel, 119 through 1042, uh, one author said that this is Jesus' self-disclosure in word and deed. 
And so this section is Jesus is disclosing himself. He's revealing who he is and the plan that he has to save the world. And we're seeing that on display in word and deed. And this section here in 2, 3, and 4, there are many signs and works and words that are on display in his early ministry. And that's what you're going to see today. Another guy just said, and I thought it was really helpful, and, and Ryan, I think, actually, uh, we had, he mentioned that in, in our prayer this morning. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, the old is gone and the new has come. And I think these three chapters are going to bring that to us and help us see that. Uh, they, re- they present the replacement of the old wine, I mean, or the old purification system, by the wine of the kingdom of God. They present the old temple uh, to us and then, and then point us to the new and risen Lord. Uh, we see an exposition of the old creation kind of, and then the new birth that has come forth in chapter 3. In chapter 4, you're going to see this water of Jacob's well and the living water of Christ. You continue in chapter 4, you'll see the worship of Jerusalem and, and Gerizim will be replaced with the, by the worship of spirit and in truth. All these things, it's like the new is being ushered in and Jesus is bringing all this stuff together. And when we're seeing it, I think we have to see it and see how Jesus' signs and words and works are all on display so that we will understand that he is ushering in the dawn of the new age has come. And he's ushering that in before us. So when we look at Jesus turning water into wine, I think we have to understand that. And we really almost always have to ask when we see a sign, how does this sign breed faith in Jesus? How is it going to help us see him? How is it going to help us understand what he's doing? How is it helping like stir and grow our faith in Christ? So... Let's look at verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Um, we, we just, when we're looking at this, we see it is in Cana. It's a town in the region of Galilee. Uh, it's north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, in verse 12, you're going to see him go to Capernaum. All this is in the Galilean region uh, where all this is taking place. Uh, so Jesus goes to a wedding. Uh, if there are some that I think in, in times past might have thought Jesus didn't care much for that. But if you read this, you think, well, he is at a wedding. He is celebrating a marriage. It's a good thing. And, and, and he sees that in that way. Uh, Jesus, uh, the re- I mean, him and his mother and his disciples all being there probably tells us that somehow this family was directly connected to them. And so there was a relationship there, whether it was a relative or a close family friend, we don't know. We, you, know you might even look at it and go, well, his mother seems to uh, be involved in, in the, when there's a problem, she's there potentially trying to help fix it, and so, or she is. And so some way maybe she's uh, uh, helping with the whole of the festivities that are going on here. Verse th- th- 3 says, when the wine ran out, she comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Um, this in, in that culture, a wedding celebration could last a week. And so it was a long, extended period of time. Uh, the, the financial responsibility of that would lay on the groom. Uh, so to run out would be an embarrassment. And in a shame culture like that would even be a greater embarrassment. You wouldn't just say, oh, that was funny that that happened. I mean, it would be a serious deal. 
uh, for this to take place. Uh, I also read that, that, that the groom could be open to a lawsuit if the aggrieved relatives of the bride were kind of really fired up about it. Then he could kind of face those kinds of things. And so uh, Mary comes to Jesus. Now, was she expecting a miracle? Uh, you know, sometimes when you look at something like that, you think, is she thinking like Jesus go over there and like, you know, touch that water and just fix the deal. You know, I, I don't know that we could go that far. It, it's, um, it, one of the things you'll see is this was the first of his signs. And so, uh, I, I think it's more of a mom going to an adult son and saying, Hey, you got to help fix this thing. You know, this is a problem. And so, uh, even most people would argue that she, uh, that Joseph had died because he doesn't show up on the scenes. We don't ever see him at any other time. And so she may have really leaned on Jesus as her first adult son. I mean, her, her firstborn son. And so, um, you know, he may have been the one that provided for things, took care of things. And so she is coming to him. Now, verse 4 says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Um, this is uh, one of those places where, I mean, honestly, every time I read it, I think, good night. I mean, you know, this is a little bit, I mean, it's abrupt, kind of harsh, almost response, it feels like, you know. Um, it's, it, you might say, well, the tone is not rude, but it is abrupt. I mean, it's a very clear uh, kind of uh, rebuke, if you will. Uh, an author wrote, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom uh, from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. His only like direction, his only guide, and we'll see this throughout the gospel, is the Heavenly Father's will. And so Jesus' ministry is beginning. And in the beginning of his ministry, it becomes very apparent that he is going to do the Father's will and that nobody kind of gets the inside track. There will be another time in John where, or it may be in Matthew, I'm trying to think now. It's in a chapter, I think a chapter 12. But it's, it's uh, when, when it'll be like he'll speak and say, these are my, mother, uh, my mothers and brothers and all that stuff. So he's saying like he, he's almost bringing to the... To, to us like this understanding that that like he is separating himself from the earthly at some level and he's doing his heavenly work and you're going to see that on display you might you know it's interesting she of all people and you got to think about this for you uh, maybe that, that have been mothers or watched a mother she's born him nursed him taught him how to do things uh, watched over him you know helped him learn to walk. I mean, all of this stuff, it'd be very difficult for her to now be in this place where she's not only raised him and relied upon him, but now he is stepping into this ministry and everything is changing. Everything really becomes subordinate to the mission, divine mission uh, that he's been given. Um, She could no longer, you could say, view him like an earthly mother would view an adult son. Things are radically different because of the call placed upon him. Now, um, I think it's the only other thing we might want to say about this is like at at the end, on the cross, Jesus like makes sure that she's provided for, right? 
So he's not like being like totally distancing himself from her. He loves his mother, but at the same time, he's, he's called uh, to do something, uh, of course we know, to come and be the savior of the world. Now, um, all of that needs to, everything about him needs to be viewed in light of the cross. And so when he says, my time has not yet come, uh, or hour has not yet come, some translations would use, it, it's referring to his death on the cross and his exaltation. So it's saying, all, all that I've come to do, which is centered on the cross and his resurrection, th- th- that time has not yet come. And so, um, and everything is kind of tied to it. And so it's almost like uh, she may have been just been coming to him with like a, just saying, hey, help me take care of this. And Jesus escalates this to a higher level than what she would probably have even understood. All right. So what's going to happen in John is you're going to see later, there'll be a time when the hour does come and it will be kind of a flow out of that. And we'll see that on display. So Jesus takes it to this higher level and, and it's something that um, I, I think we need to see now. What's another thing just to note that I think it's really, really important is um, Mary just wants there not to be embarrassment at the wedding. Uh, Jesus, and I think we could see this if we were able to trace each one of these out. Jesus remembers that the prophets characterized the messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. So like I said, I think he escalates this thing. And then what happens is, as you see and think about the age to come, this heavenly age, there is an escalating of things to a point where Jesus is going to be pointing to something beyond just this wedding feast saying like, there's coming a day uh, really where, where what I am about and what I'm going to accomplish is going to bring forth this unbelievable blessing. So, um, I I think, like I said, I think we need to see that, um, so either way you look at that, I think it's helpful for you to, to, to note that as we're moving forward. Um, at, at the end of this sign, the disciples will witness Jesus' glory and believe on him. And so it's another one of those things where you're seeing that it's not just this miraculous thing, but it's something even further they're going to hope in. They're going to put their trust in this Messiah who's come to to restore all things now the other thing is just one last little note here at the end of chapter three um jesus is identified as the messianic bridegroom as this this one who's come coming to to really in a sense and you're going to see that even in ephesians and other places but he's presented in that way and so um he's going to usher in this day and provide uh these wonderful uh this wonderful blessing that's going to come as a result of his life death burial and resurrection okay so verse five you get there so he stops her and, 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 you know, like it's in a kind of an abrupt stop. And he says, like, he speaks of something that she may not have fully understood. But then in verse 5, his mother says, servants, do whatever he tells you. So it's almost like, you know, you could say, what, what's happening there? I, I think if you'll read, and you could read this maybe in other places, but like there's a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 that's kind of rebuked that way. And then she perseveres and pushes towards Jesus I think Mary is seen like as okay like laying aside being his mother she moves in closer again and I think it is probably a sign 
of her um, persevering uh, faith, of pressing forward. And, and like I said, one author wrote it this way. I thought it was helpful. Uh, like the Canaanite woman who was rebuked for her presumptuous approach, but who persevered and was praised for her faith, so Mary is rebuked for presuming on the family tie, yet displays faith that is perfectly content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. He, he's going to kind of do this in a number of cases in the Gospel of John, but this is one of those things where someone is going to press in and say, Lord, I, I trust you. I'm hoping in you. And she likely is a sign of that, trusting him fully. Now, verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So we're talking about a massive amount uh, 120 to 180 gallons. Uh, notice what they're called for the Jewish rites of purification. Now that's another little thing where you're saying, now, "Hold on, just a second. Why do we emphasize what these these are? Why, why are we emphasizing that?" And uh, I think it's one of those things where you're saying, "What these jars are kind of a clue into the meaning of this passage." The water, I think, the best way to understand this, represents the old order of Jewish law and custom. And Jesus is going to replace it with something better. I think, I think it's a way of helping you, because Jesus has already taken this. It's not just about water to wine. He's already said that with his mom, he's like speaking on a higher level. And then you get to this thing about the Jewish rites and all these little pots. And you think, hold on just a second. We are talking about something that's more than just turning water into wine. And so I think that's probably what's taking place. He's bringing in something greater. All of the old system is now going to be replaced by something new. And you're, again, you're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, but but I, I think that's important to see. Also, the quantity here is likely symbolic of this provision in the New Age. It's just so, it's astonishing the great like display that's on, uh, laid out before you. Now, verse 7 and 8. Jesus said to the serpents, fill this jars with water. And they turned it, um, they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, take it to the master of the feast. Uh, this, this master of the feast is there. He's going to take it. He's going to taste it. And look what happens. He, he tastes it. And he finds out, like, when he, when he tastes it, he's shocked that this wine is there. But not only that, he goes to the bridegroom and says to him, everybody serves the good wine first. Why have you waited to, to bring this to at this time? This, the poor wine should have been uh, really, the, the, it should be served last after people have been drinking for some considerable period of time. But I, but I think, again, we're, we're thinking in the bigger picture, and John points is point maybe is, is saying like Jesus is is superior. What he is bringing is superior, and uh, what he is introducing is superior. What he is accomplishing is superior to anything that you have ever experienced before. And and that is one of those things that God does. Is the the last uh, when you see stuff like the last will be first. In, in, I mean, in the context of like. Not the last to be first, sorry, I don't know how to say it. I'm trying to communicate that. It, when, when you're thinking about um, oftentimes the way that, the, that God works in his um, story of redemption is that he is giving us a taste along the way of something wonderful. 
But as you move throughout his revelation, it gets greater and greater and greater and greater. So that when Jesus comes on the scenes, the wonder of this all, the amazement is that this is far superior to anything that you could have ever imagined. So for us living now, in this time of history, you and I have gotten more uh, wonderful blessings than anyone in the Old Testament would have ever, ever dreamed of. It's more powerful and more amazing than we could have ever imagined. So verse 11 says, This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's, uh, the, the, this, is, uh, this idea of manifesting his glory, remember, takes you back to chapter 1, where Jesus is displaying uh, he, he, is, he is unveiling the glory of God in a way that you could have really like not grasped before. He's inaugurating this new age, and what comes with that is a disclosure about God and his purposes that transcends anything that you have seen before. Uh, these are signs. You should remember that. They're not just miracles. They are signs. They're not just like displays of power. To impress people. They are signs. They are displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that have to be perceived with the eyes of faith. There's something that are not something you can see with the natural eye. You could see that water was put in there and wine came out. But to see it at the level of what is actually taking place, these things are things that must come from God, things that he must open our eyes to see. If you think back to the parables, when Jesus was teaching the disciples, the disciples said, why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus spoke to them and he said, their unbelief, now I'm going to even confuse this, by their unbelief I'm going to confuse it even further. But he says to the disciples, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. There's something of what's taking place here is where God is, or Jesus is unveiling for them these marvelous truths. This glory that's not visible to the human uh, natural understanding. It's a glory that is perceived by faith. Faith in Jesus. So, 2, 12 through 22, you move forward. You see Jesus clears the temple. And 2, 12, after this, he went. Sorry, hold on a sec. He went uh, to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. Now, he's in the northern region, and then he goes there. Capernaum's kind of like headquarters uh, for his ministry there in the northern region. Spent a lot of time there. He's going down to uh, the southern region. He's going, uh, in a way, it's going to say up to Jerusalem, uh, up in the sense geographically, Jerusalem was up high. Uh, it was uh, the center of, of, of the, you know, the children, children of Israel's life there, a center of worship. And so the, he's going to go down there during Passover. And he goes to, uh, during Passover, and if you're kind of new to this, like you will see, Three, maybe four Passovers in John's time. It happened once a year in John's gospel. You will see that. And uh, the Passover of the Jews indicates just that's what they would say 
when they were trying to speak of going to Jerusalem or the Passover there in Jerusalem being celebrated. Uh, that, that's what the people in Judea were called uh, Jews. And so this is happening. They're, they're going to go up there to the Passover. It happened at the end of March, uh, the beginning of April. We know that the final Passover spoken of in the Gospels will be during that time Jesus will be crucified. It will point to him being the lamb who was slain for us. And so if you don't know anything about Passover, just real quick, when the people of Israel were in Egypt and they were in bondage, uh, there came a time where uh, God was going by a great sign. He was going to kill the firstborn in all of Egypt in order for Israel to not lose their firstborn. He told them to take a one-year-old lamb, uh, unblemished, and take the blood of that lamb and paste it, you know, pl- put it over the doorpost of the house. And as the angel of death passed over, uh, he would pass over that house where the blood had been uh, poured or, or kind of painted on. And so every year they celebrated this as a reminder of uh, God's uh, deliverance by substitution. And you see that throughout. Now, so they're going down there in verse 14. In the temple we found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Uh, These were animals used in the sacrificial worship of God. Uh, It was like a service that was provided for these people. That People traveled from all over the world. They would come there during this time, and so these animals would be there. You would purchase the animal, but before you could purchase the animal, uh, somebody had to, like, take your money and, and turn it into the money that could be spent there. And so there was this exchange rate that went on. Um... And so uh, this was all, at this point, happening inside the temple, probably in the Gentile region of the temple. And so Jesus comes upon this. He sees what's taking place. And verse 15 says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Um, now, does this mean that what they were doing was uh, completely bad? Everything that was going on there? Um, I don't know that we could like totally take that step. Uh, one thing you could say is they shouldn't have made, you could say the temple was not a place of commerce. That could have been done. And at times it was outside of the temple. And so it wasn't a place to be like, there's just loud things going on and animals. I mean, it was a place of worship. It was a place for prayer. It was a place to meditate on the Lord. It was a place to deal with your sins. So it wasn't this wild thing that should have, what was going on there would have been a, a loud kind of obnoxious thing that was going on. So I don't know that you'd have to say that, look, these people were really sticking it to them uh, in, in the temple. Uh, they were doing something wrong. It, it, it likely was dealing with um, primarily is like, this place, again, was a place of worship and holy adoration to God, and it had become kind of this noisy place of commerce. And so he addresses them in that. I think that's important. You will see that in some of the Old Testament prophets will speak about it. But I think um, one author, the way he explained this, and I thought it was helpful, it was a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart 
without clamor or distracting influences. At the same time, it leads into a a related theme. The temple itself, the focal point where God and believers met, where God accepts believers because of a bloody sacrifice, will be superseded by another temple and another sacrifice. So Jesus is like not only going to cleanse the temple and address the issues there, but he is ushering in a new temple. He is the temple. He is the final sacrifice. He is the great high priest. That's what we'll learn in the New Testament. And so there's a sense in which he is saying, look, out with the old, in with the new. And, and I think that's probably some of what is taking place. He is going to address this, and it's really, in a way, it's a real blessing. It should be a blessing to them. Because all of this system that was a temporary system is going away, and he's ushering in a new and greater way. And so I think that's something that we should see. Verse 17, his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God. And, and, and so I think that's, that's very important for us to see. So he cleanses the temple. Then you move forward and you say he replaces it. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's like they're asking for, what are your credentials for coming in to this place and doing what you're doing? Um, They they, they don't seem to stop and say, well, maybe we ought to reflect on what we've been doing. They're they're not really thinking about it. There's no kind of self-examination. They're not asking the question, is our worship truly pure before the Lord? They don't seem to be focused on that. Um, but they didn't think he was just completely crazy because otherwise maybe it would have started an uproar. They're asking him uh, some questions here. Now, they're requesting a miraculous sign. It's kind of a picture where they're thinking like maybe he is this, this, he is in some way involved in the coming of the kingdom potentially. Um, if they had had eyes to see, they would have seen this as a sign. If they truly would have been able to see this spiritually, they would have seen this as a sign where Jesus is ushering in this greater day, this new day dawning. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He is offering them a sign and it is the sign of him coming and him giving his life. In him being destroyed and then resurrecting forward victorious. It's almost like they don't see that first little sign and then he points them to the greater sign. There, there's going to be a replacement of this temple. He is going to transcend. He is the embodiment of the presence of God with men. And he is going to usher in a way where they can enter into God's presence in a way that they could have never dreamed possible. Verse 20 and 21, they say it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. The human body of Jesus uniquely manifests the Father. It's the focal point of the relationship of God to man coming together. Of God dwelling with man on this earth. And they could not see this. In this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. And after three days of death and burial, 
Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. So all of this is going on. I think it's very important that we read this rightly, that understand like what that Jesus is replacing and fulfilling all that the temple was pointing to. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You'll notice that John says, this is what he'll say. And this is so important for us to understand. He'll say, the disciples will get this. The disciples will understand this. Just like the water to wine, the disciples, they're going to get that. And now the, the cleansing and the replacement of the temple, the disciples will see it. Some would see the signs. Some would see those and they would say, oh, it's a miracle. But they would not truly see the depth of what was taking place. Jesus is ushering in this new age. So, I think that leads us to 2.23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John tells us that Jesus did many different signs. John did not have the ability to write down all that Jesus did, all the signs that Jesus did, and all the things he was doing and accomplishing. But what he does is he he zooms in and he focuses on some of those signs. And one of the things you find out is that there are people that are around what Jesus is doing. They are seeing with earthly eyes, physical eyes, what is taking place. They are believing that what he did was true. He did this. He did that. He did. They're believing in it. But Jesus knows their heart. And he knows that they do not truly believe. Verse 24 and 25. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no, more, no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. What a shocking thing. Sometimes when we talk to people and we'll say, somebody will say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe this. I believe he died. I believe this. I believe that. And you say, but are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? You believe at some level, but this is a false belief. Jesus knew that they believed at some level, but it was not a saving belief. It was not a genuine faith. And I think that will lead us to chapter 3. You must be born again. Who does that? The Spirit of God does that. How does he do that? The scripture says the wind blows where it wills. Jesus said that. And we don't know where it came from or where it's going. But all we know is when the Spirit shows up, when the Word comes forth and the Spirit shows up, people who were once maybe even intellectually understood the Bible now truly believe it. Their hearts are transformed by the Spirit so that they rightly, truly repent and believe. So that they understand that it's not just about the water to wine. And it's not just about this cleansing of the temple. It is about something much deeper. The water to wine imagery there is Jesus is ushering in a day that is far superior to anything you've ever seen. He is the Messiah promise. All these things were pointing to him. And it's seeing this. He's not just cleaning up the temple. He's replacing it. 
He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is the new temple. And when we understand that and we're faced with that, that's what it means to become a Christian. It is to see Jesus for who he is. It is to see him and receive him. It is to see him and align yourself with him. It is to see him and live for him and serve him and want to know him and to make him known and to sacrifice for him and to look forward to his coming. And so I think this, this section of scriptures, when you rightly read it, you say, genuinely understand that Jesus is the hope that was promised throughout the Old Testament and that those who believe in him truly from the heart, transformation that takes place by the Spirit, they will be saved and he will entrust himself to them and they will know him as their shepherd and he will keep them and not one, no one will snatch them out of his hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we as your people would see and believe. We pray that by the Spirit's power we'd be given eyes to see and believe. Lord, for those of us here who have at at some point in time by the Spirit's power we've been given the unbelievable... um, understanding of the good news of what Jesus came to do, we pray that we would never, ever, ever take that lightly. It is a great picture of your mercy and grace, and we want to make sure that we share that with others. In Christ's name, amen.